We're in Romans chapter 7. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. As we continue in uh, the book of Romans this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, we thank you for all of the moms. Pray blessing upon them today. And as we study your word and, and look at the conflict with sin, the conflict with sanctification, God, would you just help us to find freedom in you? We, we thank you that you're our dad. We thank you, Jesus, that you're living water. We want to drink of you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 7 to me is just fascinating. It's, it's one of the most fascinating chapters in the Bible. And this is why. Because as we're studying the book of Romans, we see Paul really laying out the gospel. He's going deep into the gospel, showing us first our depravity, then that we're justified freely by God's grace. There's nothing that we can do to earn or deserve salvation. It's when we trust God, when we believe in what Jesus has done, his death and resurrection were declared righteous. Then in chapter 6, he lays out sanctification, which is a process of becoming more like Christ. Justification happens the moment that we believe, a free gift. Sanctification is God continuing to grow us, to set us apart in the image of Christ through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Not only the penalty of sin is paid for, but the power of sin is paid for as well. Then everything seems to hit the brakes in chapter 7. And you're just going, I don't, under, I don't understand this. Why, why all of a sudden is Paul opening up with his own personal struggle with sin? And it's the conflict of sanctification that we all wrestle with. Here Paul knows these truths. I'm free from the power of sin, but why do I still sin? Ever been there, right? So I find Romans chapter 7 to be very comforting because if Paul wrote this letter and was like, I never struggled with sin, what's wrong with you guys? There'd be no hope for us, right? So there's a lot of comfort in this, but also there's a great insight for us when we come to the end of chapter 7 going in to Romans chapter 8. We begin with Paul giving us an illustration that we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, then he'll begin to open up about his own struggle with sin. Verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. That's the key understanding, as long as he lives. As long as we live, then the law is going to have dominion over us. Paul gives an illustration from the Old Testament where a woman could not divorce her husband, and he will tie that into our relationship with the law. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, then she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so she is no adulteress, that she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So a woman couldn't move on to a second husband unless her husband died. Then if her husband died, she would be released and be able to be remarried. 
But if you look closely here, what Paul is saying is we're the ones who died. In verse 4, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. As we trust Christ for salvation, we died. We're crucified with Christ because the law could never die. The law is perfect. Think about it this way, ladies, to, to speak to all the married ladies here. Let's say you're married to Mr. Perfect. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, absolute perfection. Eats all of the right things. Never eats unhealthy. We're talking bran flakes and kiwis for, for breakfast, organic smoothies. Never leaves his chonies around. The <laughs> dirty boxers always picks those up. Puts things away just in the perfect place. Ladies, don't you hate that when your husband unloads the dishwasher? It's like, where did the potato peeler go, right? But, but not your husband. He, he is Mr. Perfect. And this is great for the first few months of marriage, but then it starts to drive you nuts. You're like, he is so perfect that he's not very much fun to be around. I mean, he never loses his temper. He never gets angry. He never says the wrong thing. And it just seems to highlight my own struggles and, and highlight my, my own sin. So you come to this point of desperation after a few years and you're like, I'm going to kill this guy. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just time for homicide. I, I can't live with Mr. Perfect any longer. So you get the arsenic and you're going to put it in his coffee. Oh, by the way, he doesn't drink coffee because he's Mr. Perfect. So it, it's the herbal tea, the non-caffeine tea that you're going to have to put the arsenic in. And, and you put the arsenic in and you just start to feel this relief that has come over you because you know he's going to pass away. And he, he drinks the arsenic. A few minutes go by, 15 minutes go by. Nothing happens. He has perfect kidneys perfect kidneys. You're like, what in the world? I, I just can't get rid of Mr. Perfect. Then you find yourself sick and you realize you're dying and some relief comes over you. Like, ah, oh, finally, I'm released from Mr. Perfect. And you pass away to then wake up in the arms of Jesus and you're married to Mr. Grace, right? And Christ is both perfect and Gracious. Now, this illustrates the reality of our relationship with the law. The law is Mr. Perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is with us. But when we died with Christ, the law's not going to die. But when we died with Christ, we're then risen to marry another to Christ. We're married to Christ. We're the bride of Christ. To now we bear fruit unto God through grace. We have a relationship with God that's lined up with grace, Not Mount Sinai where the law was given, but Mount Calvary where Jesus says it is finished. Not what we've done, but he's done. And in this loving relationship, then we're able to bear fruit to God. Paul goes on to talk about serving in the newness of the spirit. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So, so the law just arouses the sinful nature inside of us. Once you have a rule, it produces rebellion, unfortunately, in our flesh. But now we have been delivered from the law. We're no longer under the law, having died to what we were held by, 
so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We're going to focus on this verse on Wednesday night, what it really means to serve in the newness of the Spirit. But for this morning, it's the new covenant of God's grace. God promised this in the Old Testament, that he would give a new covenant through the blood of his Son, where it's not rules and regulations put upon a stone, God wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger on a stone, but God writing on our hearts, where the Spirit of God is leading us and equipping us and convicting us, and we get to serve out of the newness of the Spirit. The best way I can think to illustrate this is when I was growing up, my dad had Saturday mornings were chores. We had our daily chores and then our chore that we would do on Saturday before we could go do what we wanted with our friends or ride our bikes or whatever. And it was mow the lawn and wash the car. So my brother would mow the lawn, I'd wash the car, then we would switch on Saturdays. We had a Ford Fairmont and then a Ford Taurus. I guess we loved Ford station wagons, right? So when it was my turn to wash the car, I'm not detailed. And I didn't care about the quality of my work. So I just wanted to do it as quick as I could so I could go have fun. And my dad was an engineer, and he's like, no, that's not going to work. Like, it's dirty here, it's dirty there. You need to do it again. But everything changed when I got my driver's license. And I asked to use the Ford Taurus to take a gal on a date, right? Little did I know she would not be impressed with the Ford Taurus. But I cleaned that station wagon like I'd never cleaned it before. Why? Because it was the newness of the spirit. It wasn't just the Saturday chore. It was like, man, I got to try to impress this girl. I'm going to make sure this car is clean. And when God gets a hold of our hearts through his grace, it's the newness of spirit. It's not a rules-based relationship with God, but one where he has won our hearts. Now Paul gets into his own struggle with sin. He knows he's free from the law. He knows he's under God's grace, but yet he's still struggling with sin. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would have not known sin except through the law, for I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. There's nothing wrong with the law. And Paul says it was actually the law that revealed my sin. What he's struggling with is covetousness. I don't think the apostle Paul necessarily is struggling with wanting more possessions, but He seemed with his background to long for position and power. That was everything that his life was built upon before he knew Christ as his Savior. In Philippians 4, Paul writes and said he had to learn contentment. This covetousness that was inside of him and the law revealed it. Verse 8, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So sin, taking opportunity by the commandment. So here's the commandment, here's the law, and his sin produces this evil desire. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. So sin just keeps popping its head up and producing death. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. So the law should bring life. Well, it does if you obey. If you obey, there's blessing. If you disobey, there's cursing. 
Paul's experiencing death instead of life because of his own disobedience. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. He's just expressing his struggle with sin. Where the law, the more he focused on these righteous requirements, the more that he struggled with sin. Verse 19, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. You may have noticed this, but Paul has changed to talk in the first person. He's referring to himself here, saying, we know that the law is spiritual. We know that the law is good. God's word is good. The way that God wants us to live our lives, it's good. But Paul then says, I'm carnal and sold under sin. What does that mean? Carnal literally means fleshy. Paul's saying, "I, I have this sinful flesh and I'm sold under sin. So even though I'm justified, Even though the power of sin has been broken, God is sanctifying me, I'm still wrestling with my flesh. The psalmist says that he's going to be satisfied when he awakes in the Lord's likeness. That's part of the promise of eternal life is we're going to see God and be like him. We're no longer going to struggle with our sinful flesh. Isn't that going to be great? I'm looking forward to that. You know, it's, it's, it's draining, it's heavy day after day to, to wrestle with our flesh, this, this reality of, of being carnal. Verse 15, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Paul's trying to understand even his own behavior. Have you ever been there? Here's the things I'd really like to do. I really want to do. I will to do them but I don't do them. And here's the things that I hate. Here's the things that I don't want to do, but I find myself practicing those things. I think it takes a lot of courage for the Apostle Paul to be transparent in this way. Here he is, the the Apostle Paul, who's, who's walking with the Lord. And he's saying, here I am, wrestling with my flesh. I think you know this, but every person, all of us, wrestle in this way. There's not one leader, one pastor, one author, one worship leader, missionary, nobody. If if the Apostle Paul wrestles like this, we we know we all wrestle like this. If we're transparent this morning, we go, yeah, this is unfortunately is, is my experience as well. In verse 16, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So when I disobey, I'm actually confirming what the law has to say. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. We got to be careful with this verse because if you just take this verse and run with it, you might think that the Apostle Paul is not going to take any responsibility for his sin. Well, it's not me, it's sin inside of me. Well, well, that's you, right? So what Paul is expressing here is just his wrestling with sin. But even when we sin... We're still responsible for our our sin. Verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. 
For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. This is an important place for us to get to. It is hard and it's difficult, but to understand that in me dwells no good thing in my sinful flesh. Because most of us think, well, some part of me is good. Especially when I compare myself to the rest of my family, right? Well, you should see my brother, my, my sister, or, or my, my parents. We play this comparison game to convince ourselves that we're good. But if we really look at any given week, any given month, and see how we're wrestling with sin and giving in to sin, the reality of it is, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Does this mean God doesn't love us? Thankfully not. He does love us. He loved us while we were still sinners and Christ died for us. But in my flesh dwells no good thing. This is a really important question that Paul asks in verse 18. If you're a Bible underliner, it's worth underlining. How to perform what is good, I do not find. How do I do this? Here God has given these commands of how he wants me to to live my life. And I'm trying to walk in obedience but I'm falling short. How do I do this? How in the world do I do this? I need to overcome my anger, but I keep falling short. I'm walking in lust. How do I overcome that battle? Bitterness. I continue to be angry at, the, at this, this person. I want to share my faith, but I seem not to. I want to read my Bible, but I always get too busy. How? How do I grow in this uh, Christian life? And Paul's wrestling with that very important question. Goes back into the struggle. For the good that I will to do, I do not do it, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. There's just a lot of doo-doo in this chapter, right? (laughs) Just a lot of, man, I'm not doing the things that I should do. Verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me. He's saying, this is a reality. Evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. So this conflict, this battle, this struggle, evil is present with me, but also The Spirit of God is present with me, and I do desire to delight in the Word of God, to delight in the Lord. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So here comes the flesh, here comes sin, and it's warring against the Word of God, warring against the law, warring against my mind, and brings me into captivity to the law of sin. And this desperation of the Apostle Paul, you can just hear it. Verse 24, O wretched man that I am. O wretched man that I am. Not how wretched is everybody else around me. How wretched is culture. But I'm broken. I'm sinful. I'm not experiencing the victory that God God has for me. To be broken before the Lord. God honors humility. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to to the humble. 
Possibly the Lord is waiting for us to come to the end of ourselves, the end of our resources, the end of our good ideas, our own behavior modification apart from Christ, saying, I'm wretched. I'm sinful. In and of myself, I cannot have victory in this. Well, God bless you guys. Happy Mother's Day. You're a bunch of wretches. Thankfully, it doesn't stop there. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is hope in Romans chapter 7, where Paul asks this question now, not how, how will I perform these things, but who, who will deliver me from this body of death? There were times in the Roman Empire, if someone committed murder, that they would take the corpse of the person that they killed and tie it to them as part of the punishment, and they would have to walk around literally with this body of death. And Paul is saying, I have this sinful flesh, I have this body of death that causes me to not do the things that I want to do, to do the things that I hate, and who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Well, thankfully for Jesus, there's a who. I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord. Please read ahead to Romans chapter 8. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And chapter 8 gloriously leads us into a life of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're going to see the Spirit of God, our position in Christ, how that works out practically as we walk this out. There's a new development that's uh, happened in my life recently, and I'm a flag football coach. My son, Wyatt, signed up for a flag football league. It's his first year playing flag football. He's in fourth grade. They're fourth and fifth grade boys. Signed up for the league, and they asked for volunteers to coach. So I'm like, oh, okay, I can do this. You know, the practices and the games are on Sunday afternoons. I'm available on, on Sunday afternoons. So I signed up to be the assistant coach because I never played football. I'm a basketball guy. Don't know a lot about football. We're getting closer and closer to the season, and I'm noticing on the roster, there's no head coach. <laughs> so I'm getting nervous, and they have a Zoom meeting for all of the coaches, and it's a national league with a chapter here in the, in the springs. I'm listening to this Zoom meeting. There's one part of the meeting that was real quick. It's like, if there's no other coaches that sign up and you're by yourself, you're it. Michael, because this whole time I'm thinking, of course, they're going to give me another coach, right? I'm so used to how things work here at the church where there's, there's always two background checked adults with, with kids. I'm like, they're going to have to put a, another, another coach with me. He's like, nope, you're it. So we get to the first practice, right? And I sit down with the parents. I say, all right, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm volunteering. I don't know anything about football. Uh, I played basketball, but, but I'm giving this my, my, best, my best shot. And when I get out there, honestly, it was super intimidating because there's like hundreds of kids out on this field, a bunch of teams, and there was like some all-pro dads. I mean, they're like 
you know, got their athletic pants on and I got my jeans on and they got all these cones and multiple footballs. And I was busy leading up to the practice. I didn't have time to go get cones. And of course, the league doesn't supply those. So I got canned food out of the pantry (laughs) to be my cones, right? So I'm looking around, feeling pretty insecure and setting up my my canned food and, and running practice. And the problem wasn't the how, because the league provides an app to teach you how. Like all the rules are there, the drills, the plays, the, the how is there, right? But I'm struggling here out in the field of, of flag football. So now we get to week two. That was week one. Week two, practice still by myself as a coach, run the practice. We get into our first game. The game's at five o'clock. It's running a little bit late, probably going to start about 5.15. And here comes the director of the league. And she goes, Eric, uh, this is Coach Nick. He's going to be the head coach. <laughs> right? And Coach Nick is a stud, right? He's coached before. And he grabs the boys together while we're waiting for our, our team. And he did more with those guys in 15 minutes than I could do in a lifetime. And it was like the Messiah walked into my life. (laughs) He must increase and I must decrease. (laughs) He is my new favorite person of the month, right? That's the difference of how and who. You with me? That's the difference between how and who. And so much of the Christian life, we're focused on the how. How do I do this? And we're looking at techniques and good advice. And man, the Bible is full with amazing truths. The books of Proverbs has, has the hows. But thankfully, it doesn't stop there with just how. It's not a manual where God writes out a manual for us to follow. It's Emmanuel, God with us. Isn't that good news? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. He is the way for salvation. And he is the way for breakthrough through sin. Where we look to Christ. Go, Lord, I've been struggling and failing and struggling and failing. And I'm going to put my focus on you, Jesus. Who can deliver me from this body of death? It's you, Christ. Have you noticed as you focus on the sin that it tends to lead to more failure? I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm not going to lose my temper. I lost my temper just trying not to lose my temper, right? (laughs) But you focus on Christ. You, You focus on who he is, his goodness, and walking with him. And you look back and you go, man, still not perfect, but wow, something's happened. Jesus has done a work in my heart. It's not how, it's who. Thank Jesus who delivers us from this body of death. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, we humble ourselves before you. And the reality of it is, is we're right there with the Apostle Paul. There's sin in our lives that we're sold under. We know in our heads that we have freedom, but seems to continue to get the best of us. And 
we've tried different techniques. We, we've tried the how. We've looked at all of the, the advice, but continue to fall short. Right now, we understand that in us dwells no good thing. We can't even change ourselves. We need you. We're wretched. But we're thankful that you're able to change us. You're able to transform us, that you give us victory. And we ask for a greater ability by your grace to focus on you, Jesus. Your love for us, your presence with us, that you never leave us, that you never forsake us. And we cry out to you, we need you. We need you afresh in our lives. Holy Spirit, we can't do this without you. We ask for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. And may there be breakthrough in our lives for your glory that we could express to people that it wasn't a technique, but it was a work that only you could do in our lives.